Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In Wuhan, they're partying like it's 2019. The nightclubs, bars and restaurants are all packed. But Britain begins 2021 in the grip of its worst national emergency since World War II. Tens of thousands are dead, hospitals are overwhelmed and they're running out of oxygen. The population is under lockdown and the economy is in crisis. How did this happen? As thousands celebrate New Year's Eve and the end of 2019 in cities across Britain, our Prime Minister sunbathes in the Caribbean resort of Mystique. The Times newspaper splashes on Britain sees a new year on a wave of optimism. Buried in the news is an unnerving story. China reports a mysterious cluster of pneumonia with 27 stricken, most of whom had visited a seafood market in Wuhan. In the coming days and weeks, people begin to die and cases spread to Japan, South Korea, Thailand and the United States. Two years ago, Professor Devi Sridhar warned of a pandemic caused by a virus jumping from animals to humans. On 16th of January 2020, she warns on Twitter that the outbreak needed to be taken seriously because of cross-border spread, planes mean bugs travel far and fast, likely human-to-human transmission, and previous outbreaks have taught over-responding is better than delaying action. As Public Health England moves the risk level to the British public from very low to low, Wuhan is closed off. China's authorities place it under lockdown. Lockdown in the central city of Wuhan. This is the clearest sign yet to the world that this illness is very, very serious. Residents are sealed in their own homes. 17 are now dead. It's the 22nd of January, and as the Sunday Times' Insight team reports, the Scientific Advisory Meeting for Emergencies, or SAGE, meets. It's chaired by Chief Scientific Advisor, Sir Patrick Valance, and Chief Medical Advisor, Professor Chris Whitty. Those present hear that Chinese scientists are warning that the virus is very infectious. Every person infected will on average infect another three, far more infectious than flu, maybe more infectious than Spanish flu. But this month, around 2,000 plane passengers are arriving in Britain from Wuhan on three weekly direct flights. Many more are arriving from other Chinese cities. One expert, Professor Neil Ferguson, suggests that a 60% cut in transmission rate is needed. That means the strictest possible measures to stop people coming into contact with each other. Lockdown. Two days later, the government holds a COBRA meeting, the country's national crisis committee. The health secretary, Matt Hancock, leaves after an hour and tells reporters that the risk to the public is low. The prime minister is absent and instead celebrates Chinese New Year with a dragon. He'll miss the first five meetings. As the month ends, the World Health Organization declares a global health emergency and two Chinese nationals staying at a York hotel become Britain's first COVID patients. The virus is here. 
is getting serious. On Valentine's Day, the first coronavirus victim dies in Europe, a Chinese tourist in France. Britain is not prepared for what is about to hit the country. Years of austerity has allowed emergency stockpiles of personal protective equipment to degrade and become useless. Other European nations began preparing emergency procurement arrangements in January. But the British government doesn't come up with an emergency programme to protect frontline staff until March. In February, Britain is exporting PPE to China and the National Audit Office declares the nation's stockpile is inadequate. The government misses three opportunities to take part in an EU scheme to bulk buy masks, gowns and gloves. A 2016 pandemic rehearsal had found the NHS would face collapse, highlighting a lack of PPE. Training for frontline workers to be ready for a pandemic has been delayed because of preparations for a no-deal Brexit. A pandemic has long been treated as the main threat facing the country, but not in practice. Again, partly thanks to austerity. Key government meetings on pandemic preparation had been cancelled to make way for discussions about a lack of NHS resources. The NHS has been destroyed. The authorities are treating this as though it'd be like the flu, quite unlike Asian governments who saw this as a far bigger threat. Yet with the nation desperately exposed, Johnson holidays at a government grace and favour mansion in Chevening. A week later, it's clear that Europe's first major outbreak is underway in northern Italy, with up to 150 cases. The first Italian dies. Several towns and municipalities are placed under lockdown. On the 26th of February, the Ireland versus Italy Six Nations match is cancelled, but sporting events remain packed across Britain. That day, scientists warned the government that 27 million people could be infected if action isn't taken and 380,000 will die. The first British victim dies on the Diamond Princess, a coronavirus-afflicted luxury ship on the 28th of February, but Boris Johnson doesn't attend his first Cobra meeting until the 2nd of March. The Prime Minister tells his citizens to wash our hands with soap and hot water while singing Happy Birthday. And that they should, as far as possible, go about business as usual, declaring that the country is very, very well prepared. The next day he promises this country is going to get through coronavirus, no doubt at all, and get through it in good shape. This is the day scientists tell government to advise against greetings such as shaking hands and hugging. Yet Johnson tells a press conference that he went to a hospital with coronavirus patients and you will be pleased to know, continue to shake their hands. And I continue to shake hands and... Uh, but but, but our, hands. Judgment, our judgment is... Warm. Two days later, he shakes the hands of the presenters of ITV's This Morning on national television, telling them and the nation that the illness was overwhelmingly mild to moderate. He carries on contradicting the official advice of his own government, tweeting another video two days later of him shaking hands with women's rugby players at Twickenham. Panic is growing amongst the British people, evidenced by supermarkets emptied of toilet roll and pasta. But Britain has breathing space. We have time. The government has seen the crisis unfold, not just in Wuhan, but in Italy and Spain. The affluent Italian North has one of the world's best health systems, but it's been pushed to breaking point. On the 8th of March, the Italian government places 
all of Northern Italy under quarantine. The next day, all of Italy is under lockdown. Five days later, Spain's government declares a state of emergency and imposes a total lockdown. France follows suit. Not so here in Britain, where pubs, trains, buses and workplaces remain packed. From the 10th to 13th of March, tens of thousands cram together at Cheltenham Festival. Its organisers cite the presence of Boris Johnson at the England v Wales rugby game at Twickenham three days earlier as justification for going ahead. Six Britons are now dead. The government has failed to build up testing capacity in the first two months of the year and has ignored the World Health Organization's call to test, test, test. 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 Rather than suppress the virus, the British government is determined to pursue a strategy of deliberately allowing its citizens to be infected en masse by COVID-19. Perhaps you could sort of take it on the chin. There is a phrase for it, herd immunity. According to the Sunday Times, at the end of February, Boris Johnson's then spin doctor Dominic Cummings explained the strategy at a private engagement. Those present allegedly sum it up as herd immunity, protect the economy, and if that means some pensioners die, too bad. Downing Street denies this as a highly defamatory fabrication. On 12th of March, ITV political editor Robert Peston writes a piece published by the hard-right spectator, which is briefed to him by those at the very top, that the strategy of the British government in minimising the impact of COVID-19 is to allow the virus to pass through the entire population so that we acquire herd immunity. The next day, Patrick Valance, the government's chief scientific advisor, tells broadcasters that the government's approach will be to build up herd immunity. BBC political editor Laura Kunersberg chips in a day later by tweeting out a video, which went viral, to her million-plus followers justifying the government's herd immunity strategy. The man behind it is a podiatrist, a foot specialist, with the username Footman447. The Conservatives are only able to get away with a strategy which is soon proven to be disastrous because of a supine media, with notable exceptions, most surprisingly, Pierce Morgan. Senior journalists ridicule critics, demanding government action. Among the voices ignored is Lord Kerslake, former head of the civil service who on 8th of March declares that if ministers believe that emergency measures will be necessary, they should act now, before it's too late. Three days later, leading health professor Anthony Costello warns that every day of delay will kill. More than 200 scientists write a letter demanding urgent measures warning lives are being risked. According to the Sunday Times, on the 14th of March, Johnson privately U-turns and agrees to lockdown in principle, but he will spend nine days dithering how and when it should be introduced. The advice to the nation on the 16th of March is to avoid non-essential contact, but it is entirely voluntary. Other decisions will further pave the road to disaster. No sector is more vulnerable to this deadly virus than care homes. On the 19th of March, the government demands that 15,000 vulnerable patients must be discharged from hospitals into the community and into care homes to free up beds for coronavirus patients, but without compulsory tests. For another month, there will be no requirement to test the total of 25,000 patients discharged into care homes, seeding the virus in a sector where it will let rip like wildfire. Unfortunately, 
Um, she lost her fight for, with COVID last night. The British government only finally declares a national lockdown on the 23rd of March after the French government threatens to close the country's border with France. No large European nation has allowed infections to soar so high before locking down and Britain will have one of the continent's longest lockdowns and most severe economic fallouts as a consequence. The human cost of this delayed action is colossal. One study finds that with infections doubling every 72 hours, a lockdown three days earlier would have saved 20,000 lives. Another that a week earlier could have halved the total deaths. In preparation for the coming tidal wave, at the beginning of April, emergency Nightingale hospitals open, but there isn't enough staff to operate them if they are needed. The NHS is desperately unprepared for a pandemic. England alone has 40,000 nursing vacancies, a crisis worsened by the Tories scrapping student bursaries until a belated U-turn at the end of 2019. And the UK's number of doctors per 1,000 people is well below the EU average. The health service has suffered a decade-long funding squeeze. There are reports that the Nightingales are turning patients away because of staffing shortages. Without the necessary PPE, Britain will spend £10 billion extra, up to 1,300% above normal costs, in a global scramble for the gear that is needed. The Good Law project will later take the Department of Health to court over a £250 million contract awarded to a Florida-based jewellery company with no background in PPE. A Spanish businessman who acts as a middleman is paid £21 million of taxpayers' money. Another contract is spent on PPE that isn't usable. Firms linked to Tory politicians are awarded expensive contracts. Well, these are vast fortunes being made at public expense. PPE flown in from Turkey will prove useless and below UK standards. But without the necessary PPE, hundreds of NHS and care workers die in this pandemic in the first quarter of the year alone at nearly double the average of the last decade. We've had doctors tell us that they feel like lambs to the slaughter, that they feel like cannon fodder. Johnson's own hubris has not just led to disaster for the nation, but for himself. The Prime Minister of a government which has promoted herd immunity, letting the virus rip through the population, has himself become infected. On the 6th of April, he is admitted to hospital and then taken into intensive care. By the second week of April, a thousand or more Britons are dying of COVID-19 each day. The government's failure to protect its own citizens isn't just leading to mass death. Long COVID, an often debilitating long-term condition, affects around 10% of 18 to 49-year-olds infected with the virus, and more than double that for the over 70s. Unlike other countries, for the first weeks of lockdown, the British authorities tells its citizens that wearing masks will have no impact. When London Mayor Sadiq Khan publicly reveals in mid-April that he's been lobbying the Conservatives to change the rules in accordance with governments across the world, Transport Secretary Grant Shapps declares mask wearing could even be counterproductive. It isn't until the 11th of May 
as lockdown was being relaxed, that the government will order people to start wearing them in small spaces, and another month when they were made compulsory on public transport, and yet another month made them law in shops and other public indoor spaces. But it's not just masks people need for protection. If people are to self-isolate, they need to be able to afford to do so. But Britain's woefully inadequate safety net means millions cannot do so. The country's statutory sick pay is just £95.85 a week, nearly the worst in Europe. According to the TUC, 43% of workers cannot afford to self-isolate, and with only limited extra financial support available, this encourages the spread of the infection. While the furlough scheme saves many jobs, all too many, not least self-employed people, fall through its cracks, and universal credit isn't enough for people to live on. I lost uh, basically all my work, lots of... Trust in the government's handling of the pandemic is crucial to the public abiding by necessarily punitive measures which deprive them of their freedoms. Yet on the 22nd of May, it's revealed that Johnson's chief spin doctor, Dominic Cummings, has broken lockdown rules to drive his wife, who has suspected coronavirus, and child to Durham. He doesn't resign and he is not sacked. Instead, he delivers a press conference to the nation and claims that he'd driven his family to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight. Researchers later find that the episode undermines public confidence in the government, critical to ensuring people voluntarily comply with lockdown and social distancing rules. I think a huge amount of damage has been done. The consequences of the government's mass release of patients into care homes is now clear. By June, around one in every 14 care home residents have now been killed by the pandemic. No country can suppress the virus if it keeps re-importing it, but Britain has refused to quarantine arrivals, even from countries badly hit by the pandemic, until the 8th of June, 11 weeks after lockdown has been imposed. Other countries have introduced testing at airports, but Britain has not. As travel restrictions are relaxed, with a travel corridor to 59 countries unveiled, with no legal need to quarantine for 14 days on return, foreign holidays boom. Tourism has been valued over human life. If Britain has one route out of this nightmare before a vaccine, it is a functioning test and trace system to isolate the infected and anyone who has been in contact with them. On the 20th of May, Boris Johnson declares a world-beating test and trace operation will be in place by the 1st of June. Yet the government splashes millions on an app which did not work. £22 billion ends up being spent on a disastrously failed test and trace system, which was, instead of being run by public health bodies, handed to shambolic private contractors like Circa, which had previously admitted fraud and false accounting in government contracts to tag prisoners. Putting cronyism ahead of people's health and indeed their lives, the government installs Dido Harding, a Tory peer and friend of David Cameron with no public health background as head of Test and Trace and later the new agency replacing Public Health England. But in the supposed interests of private businesses, the government prematurely forces the economy to reopen. On so-called Super Saturday in early July, pubs and bars open their doors again without a functioning Test and Trace system. Rishi Sunak's eat-out-to-help-out scheme is lauded by the media but a study will later find it responsible for up to 17% of new COVID-19 clusters. 
Johnson agrees with a Tory MP that it is Britain's patriotic duty to return to the pub. He raises the nation's hopes by suggesting a return to normality by Christmas. Workers are told to return to offices, with the front page of the Telegraph summing up the government's drive as go back to work or risk losing your jobs. In August, the UCU, the University and College Union, releases a statement entitled Universities must not become the care homes of a COVID second wave, warning of the consequences of the migration of over a million students across the country. After the government is forced to U-turn in the face of Marcus Rashford's campaign to provide free school meals over the summer for poorer children, schools reopen in September. But the government has failed to provide laptops and broadband to children who needed them. Testing isn't widely available and no steps have been made to reduce class sizes or provide funding to cover schools' extra costs. By September, four in five schools have pupils self-isolating because they cannot get COVID tests. Meanwhile, the UCU's warnings are tragically vindicated. Outbreaks take place at university campuses across the country, and students are virtually imprisoned as they rack up student debts in exchange for online lectures. As the government's disastrous failures mount, so does the infection rate. On the 21st of September, Sage calls for a circuit breaker lockdown, warning of catastrophe. Valance and Witty publicly warn of 200 deaths a day within a month. As it turns out, it will prove an underestimate. But Boris Johnson has already declared that a second lockdown would be completely wrong for this country. Leading the charge in the cabinet against the new lockdown is Rishi Sunak, who puts the economy before public health. This is a grave error. All of the evidence, including from the World Bank and Lancet Medical Journal, shows that the economy can only recover if the public health crisis is resolved, and that's why Britain has the worst economic hit of the advanced economies. But Sunak even invites pandemic sceptics to 10 Downing Street. His faction wins. There is no lockdown. When the Sage decision is made public three weeks later, Labour demands a circuit breaker, but they are denounced by Sunak for being detached from reality and not acknowledging the economic cost of a blunt national lockdown. Tests and traces in collapse. Test results received within 24 hours fall from 93% in June to 14% in mid-October. To be effective, it needs to reach at least 80% of close contacts of those testing positive. In the autumn, it falls to little over 60%. By the end of the month, seriously ill coronavirus patients are dying because there isn't enough mechanical ventilation or intensive care treatment available to cope. On the 31st of October, Boris Johnson finally U-turns and announces a month-long national lockdown, now necessarily longer than an earlier circuit breaker because infections are spiralling out of control. It is too late. Thousands are again dying unnecessarily and infections are too high for even a functioning test and trace system to manage. The government's furlough scheme is extended until March, but the announcement is too late to stop many jobs from being lost. As the second national lockdown comes to an end, a confused tier system leaves more than half of the British public not fully understanding the rules. Yeah, mandatory from tomorrow. Back in the first lockdown, government ministers had applauded the key workers whose jobs, wages, terms and conditions they had spent a decade attacking. I wish there was an easier way. 
but there isn't a magic money tree that we can shake that suddenly provides for everything that people want. In November, Rishi Sunak announces many of them will suffer a renewed pay freeze, in real terms, a pay cut. The national lockdown was too late. It brought infections down, but from too great a height to make the decline sustainable. As the cold of December bites and restrictions are relaxed, infections soar. The more the government allows the virus to circulate, the greater risk of mutations. As Professor Anthony Costello puts it, the government's poor control of COVID-19 has increased the force of the infection and allowed more mutations to happen. And so it transpires, with a more infectious strain emerging in Kent, spreading across London and the southeast, and then beyond. As Labour calls for renewed restrictions, Boris Johnson denounces Keir Starmer for wanting to cancel Christmas. Days later, Johnson again U-turns by indeed cancelling Christmas for millions of people, not least in London and the South East. As ever, it was too late, and only those with the highest infections are placed in Tier 4, allowing the virus to spread in lower tiers until they too had the hardest current restrictions imposed after Christmas. As ever, the door is only shut when the horse has bolted. More than 40,000, then 50,000 infections are being announced each day. Britain's soaring infections make it an international outlier, as doctors warn that the NHS faces horrendous choices about who gets treatments and hospitals are overwhelmed, the Nightingales are being dismantled. There isn't the staff to operate them. By the end of the year, the official death toll stands at around 72,000. The excess deaths, deemed the most reliable indicator by Boris Johnson and scientists alike, is around 86,000, meaning around one in every 773 Britons have so far died in the pandemic. Thousands more will die. This was not destiny. This was not inevitable. This is the consequence of decisions made by our government, driven by complacency, by incompetence, and above all else, by misguidedly putting economic interests above human lives. By the beginning of 2021, England is in crisis. The number of people with COVID in hospital is 40% higher than the April peak. Admissions are still rocketing up. Cases in England are more than double the number compared to before the November lockdown. Nicola Sturgeon announces Scotland will lock down until at least the end of January. She notes that Scotland is around four weeks behind the situation in London and the South East. It's only now, finally, that Boris Johnson imposes a national lockdown. It is, as ever, too late from a government which allowed millions of families to mix at Christmas. It's revealed that on Sunday the 22nd of December, Sage Minutes stated that keeping schools open would mean the R-rate would not stay below one. This crucial advice was, as ever, ignored. Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, had even forced schools to stay open by threatening legal action. The consequences will be paid with the most precious thing of all, human life. Thousands more will suffer avoidable deaths. It's predicted that deaths will soon reach 100,000. That's five times higher than what Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Vallant said would be a good outcome at the start of the pandemic. 
This is the calamity brought upon this country by a government which tried to prioritise economic interests, that is, business interests, over human life. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As I record this, it's February, and well over 100,000 Britons have died. With mass vaccination underway, this nightmare will end, and better days will come. But whatever happens... Our government wants us to forget, for us all to move on. Listen to what you have just heard. Think about each and every avoidable failure, each and every avoidable delay, each and every avoidable decision to put money ahead of human life. If they can get away with the entirely preventable mass deaths of tens of thousands of their own citizens, then they can get away with anything. Whether they do or not, that is up to us. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. <laughs> 